welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. First of all, I'm very glad that you've tuned in to what is now the 20th episode of Talking Migration. I'm really pleased that the podcast is proving popular and many thanks to all of those who have contributed so far. All episodes are on our website, talkingmigration.com, and I can promise that I don't think a single one of the previous episodes are less relevant today than when they were recorded, so I hope you'll enjoy them if you haven't listened yet. So on to this week's episode. Has the debate on immigration been damaged by people too easily resorting to calling out racism? Or is it precisely racism that is at the heart of hostility towards immigration and contemporary white nationalism? Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck University of London, has argued in a recent report for Policy Exchange that there is a distinction between racism on the one hand and what he calls racial self-interest on the other hand. The argument has not unsurprisingly proved controversial. One critic, Dr. Gavin Walsh, is CEO of Brexit Analytics and columnist for Conservative Home. He's written a letter to the Financial Times critiquing the argument put forward by Kaufman, but then it was presented by a previous guest on the podcast, David Goodhart. In this episode, Garen Walsh and Eric Kaufman discuss the meaning and role of racism in immigration debates, starting with Kaufman outlining his report. Well, yeah, so the, um, the basic concept is trying to sort of interrogate really this this concept of racism as it applies to questions of immigration, for example. Um, And this really, I suppose, goes back to a distinction which social psychologists have long drawn between uh, hatred of outgroups and attachment to in-group, which are actually independent in, in social psychological research. Um, and actually, if you look at the the correlation, for example, with dislike of minority groups, say in, in the American National Election Study, um, you'll find that those who are warmer to Hispanics and Blacks and Asians are actually warmer to whites as well. I'm talking about white respondents. Okay. And it's just, which is, so, and then I suppose if we get to this concept of racism, and racial self-interest. So the term racial self-interest, this was kind of comes from uh, Shadi Hamid's, uh, this is a, a Brookings Institution scholar who talked about um, a lot of white voters in the U.S. who were, uh, in his view, voting their racial self-interest when voting for Trump, really. So this was kind of a, a kind of an ethnic vote, if you want to put it crudely, for conservative uh, white voters who were who had a high strong attachment to their uh, white identity. So I guess that the, the question then became, at what point is racial self-interest, or or if you like, group self-interest, does that shade into racism? And and by racism, I'm talking about hatred or fear of an outgroup or fear of some kind of pollution through intermarriage and so on, kind of an irrational response. Versus, on the other hand, uh, um, this racial self-interest or group self-interest response, which is about um, attachment to own group and looking out for own group interests. Now, the point is, of course, that that, that can then shade into uh, what I would call racism if it starts to violate the 
equal rights to a right to equal treatment of other citizens. Uh, so it's not as though these two are totally separate. I just want to say, just to yeah. flag something up, I want to, I, I want to come back to this idea of citizenship later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so that was kind of the, the, the initial basis. And then really what much the report was, was about was actually probing through surveys what people considered to be racist or not racist, really. And, and these were, some of these were, uh, conducted in the U.S. and some in Britain. And so, for example, the we, we asked people, particularly around immigration, for example, if, if they thought if a white person wanted fewer immigrants in order to help maintain their group share, would this be seen as racism or racial self-interest, which is not racist. So we just simply put the question like that to try and elicit, to see where the fault lines were on this question. Um, and what you saw was that the differences, say, in the United States case, the difference between whites and minorities was not that great on that question. I mean, it was about 45% of minorities and 36% of whites felt that it was racist for a white person to want less immigration to help maintain their group share. But that if you actually broke that down on partisan lines between, say, within the white population, so white Trump voters versus white Clinton voters, the spread was uh, 73% of white Clinton voters thought that was racist and 11, only 11% of white Trump voters. So that's really where you saw the big uh, divisions opening up. In the UK, it, there were similarly big partisan divisions. It wasn't quite as glaring as that. We then changed the wording around. So we changed the group. We changed it from uh, white person to, say, African-American or Japanese-American wanting less immigration to see how that affected the, the numbers. And, and so it did have a, a, a significant effect. When, you, when it was an African-American not wanting uh, immigration to preserve their group share, the partisan divide narrowed, although it was still quite significant. And then we also then changed it from uh, wanting more, say, white Americans wanting more people from Europe to come in to boost their group share. Uh, and to see what that did to the results. And that actually seemed to be seen as a lot less racist than wanting less immigration to, in order to boot, uh, maintain group share. So yeah, they, a lot of it was exploring how these di different question wordings elicited different responses. What was interesting was, however, when we asked, when we ha asked people to answer a number of questions sequentially, um, we got a lot less inconsistency in the, in the results. So for example, we... You know, 73% of white Clinton voters say a white American who wants to reduce immigration to maintain her group's share of the population is being racist. That drops to 57% of white Clinton voters who say a Japanese or black American hmm. who wants to reduce immigration to maintain group share is being racist. So that's about a sort of 16-point drop. So clearly when a white person is seeking to limit immigration to maintain group share, that's more likely to be seen as racist. However, still a majority of white Clinton voters would think that a Japanese or black American, and these are both groups that are not necessarily growing, um, that if those groups want to reduce immigration, that too is racist, which is quite interesting. And then we asked about, say, Latino or Asians who want to increase immigration from Latin America or Asia to boost their group share. And then only 18% felt that to be racist. So actually, depending on whether you're 
wording it as an increase in order to boost group share or a decrease in order to uh, maintain population share. That's a very important division. So what I, I think, and with the Trump vote, it was the reverse. So only 11% said a white American wants to reduce immigration to maintain group share uh, is, is racist. But 39% said a Latino or Asian who wants to increase immigration from Latin America or Asia to boost their group share is racist. You get the reverse effect. So each, in a way, the definition of racism as it pertains to immigration is quite fungible here, depending upon people's policy preferences and depending upon partisanship. So part of the conclusion from this is that it's actually one's view of what racism is, particularly on the immigration issue, is very much shaped by partisanship rather than by one's own uh, ethnic group. Um, so that, that, in a way, I thought was quite interesting. And, and in a way, it speaks to this question of the definition of racism, which is heavily contested, I guess, between those from different political uh, parts of the political spectrum. And so it's not a sort of simple definition. And I guess part of what I was getting at in the in the article was, was to try and come to a, a common definition uh, that, that would be meaningful. Because in a way, I, I guess my argument is I think that the terms lost some of its meaning because it's so politically... Uh, contested. Yeah, and we can come on to that. Um, uh, well, we'll definitely, I'm sure, come on to that more as well. But, uh, Garen, would you like to um, um, give a few comments uh, that I'm sure you have to the, on this report and the article? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the most interesting thing you said, Eric, was when you when you talked about pe- people um, referring to equal rights of citizens. Because um, there's been a change, and I, I speak mainly here for the UK rather than the US, but there's been a change in the um, origin of a lot of immigrants that people are concerned about. And this has affected quite significantly the way um, people talk about it. Um, it used to be um, seen through a lens of ethnic minority immigration, uh, people who um, came from quite far away, from very different cultures, usually had different skin colors. And it became a tradi- traditional part of the you know, pro-immigration movement, I think to attack their opponents as racist. Um, And where that um, began to break down, I think, was in the 2000s, because suddenly um, Britain's immigration problem became related to um, immigrants from other um, basically white population countries. And you had it first first in that um, 2005 election campaign, where... Um, in which I was involved, but not in this policy area, where um, Michael Howard's slogan was, it's not racist to put limits on immigration. And this had two kind of meanings. One of them was to say, well, there's other reasons why we might want to um, put limits on immigration. It's not actually to do with race. It's to do with um, the absorptive capacity of our society. It's to do with pressure on resources and so on, which are... uh, may or may not be sustainable arguments. Um, let's leave that to aside for the moment. And then the other argument that was advanced, and I heard it, you know, in right-wing circles quite a lot, but it usually wasn't said publicly or openly, was that, well, um, we're not being racist against um, these people because they're white like us. We've got other objections, and therefore we can't be racist. And this has, I think, um, scrambled the definition or the debate about immigration 
even though the real issue actually is about citizenship and or sub what what rights do people who are subject to the laws of the country have? Um, so in the UK, for example, you have a system where if you're an EU migrant, you you have to your employer has to pay an extra tax in order to employ you. This is not discriminatory racially, but it's very much discriminatory on the basis of um, your um, citizenship. I think we're, we're sort of seeing a shift, and that may be reflected in the partisan divisions, and I wonder if you explored this or not, um, from people who think that what matters is laws that you know apply equally to everyone, and other people who want to use citizenship as the defining characteristic of creating two different categories of people. Um, in a way that is not formally racist, because citizenship is open to everyone regardless of their um, ethnic origin, but is nevertheless creates um, different, different legal categories. And certainly you saw during the referendum campaign people um, continuing um, to make points along these lines. They would say things, Leave campaign, for example, made a, made, um, a lot of mileage by campaigning in Asian areas of the country saying um, the EU freedom of movement system is discriminatory against Asians and in favour of Europeans. There's a sense in which that is a, an anti-racist point, but it's also a um, disingenuous point in that it is not the case that the other people who voted leave in the mostly white areas of the country actually wanted more Asian immigration to make up for the European immigration they would lose. Um, so I wonder if we can, if if you can unpack the partisanness a bit more, and have you done any work into the origins of this partisan difference, or at this stage are you just looking at, um, are you just looking at the fact that they have this partisan difference? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to. Th you made some very good points there. I mean, the first thing I would say is I think that. European immigration, even though it is racially, uh, you know, skin color on a skin color basis is the same as the sort of ethnic majority, you would still, there's still an ethnic and cultural distinction. So, so I think that the, I mean, if in a way, I think the drivers of, and there's a lot of research I could get into on this, but a lot of the drivers, the, the fundamental drivers of opposition to immigration. I think are ethnic and cultural, and so in this case, even though the skin color is the same, there is a difference in terms of language, history, ancestry, customs, and so forth. Um, you know, so so Polish immigrants and Romanian immigrants can change an area, this character, for example, in, in the same way that immigrants from Pakistan and so forth can. So I, I think that at least in terms of the drivers of opposition, I, I'm not sure there's a there is somewhat of a difference. But not an, or, an enormous difference. Um, I think the term racism and the way it breaks down in partisan, uh, along partisan lines, I think that the way that term would be applied to opposition to immigration from Eastern Europe would be, again, I would have thought uh, split on partisan lines. So I would have thought that. I would think so too. Um, but I was just wondering if you'd looked at the motivations for why the partners and split. Um, on the uh, on the kinds of immigration that you have studied, why that partisan split occurs? Just why it occurs? Well, I think it's linked to worldviews, and it's ultimately linked to different 
psychological orientations between, say, conservative or authoritarian worldviews on the one hand, uh, which is which favor continuity, uh, order, and continuity over, say, change and difference. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental at, 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 at the core of this. So anything that introduces uh, change and difference is going to be viewed positively by by one group and negatively by another. And, and, and so that's going to spill over, whether we're talking about European or non-European immigration. And, but also alongside that, I think the definition of racism will, will be different in each, on each side. You know, this, so there, is, there are some things that almost everybody agrees on is racist, such as not wanting uh, a minority boss or minority neighbor. Uh, but it's when you get into some of these questions around, you know, group partiality versus uh, racism that you start to see the big divisions opening up. So I was wondering if maybe, uh, maybe Garen, you wanted to um, to say something as well about or discuss more this definition that Eric was just um, alluding to here of racism that um, that's been part of this debate and. Um, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, the the very use of these categories as, as white groups versus sort of minority groups would in itself be seen as um, as problematic. So the very fact that you categorise people in terms of racial groups and sort of uh, lit, perhaps legitimise that that particular uh, sense of uh, group identity that that in itself may be problematic. So I don't know if Gavin, you want to say something about that, and then maybe um, Eric uh, after. Well, I guess methodologically, there's a question of if you define you define the groups in this way and find patterns, you don't know whether they're an artifact of the way you have con- constructed the groups or an artifact of the other groups. There's a there's a lovely example um, of this from um, Israel, where the um, Palasha Ethiopian Ethiopian Jews, who in who in Israel who in Ethiopia were known as the Red People. Um, found their way to Israel and then were, were known as black people because compared to the Ethiopian blacker population, I guess they were they were, they had a slightly different tone. And then, but the Israelis just thought they were black people like other Africans. And since then, they have started to de- um, develop much more of an affinity for and kind of membership of Afro-American, Afro-Caribbean culture. And they've adopted a lot of the, some of the symbols and narratives of that culture, even though um, when those people's parents and grandparents were back in um, back in Ethiopia, it was quite a um, it, it was they, they would define themselves against that very culture. It's a sort of question about how when, where societies identify things start to shape the stories they tell themselves about the kind of people they are, and therefore start to shape the identities of of communities. So I have a question about, you know, it's not so much, is it illegitimate? Because if you if you study these phenomena, you have to sort of make these characteristics. And I, I wouldn't go to the extreme of saying merely um, identifying such problems um, uh, raises questions of legitimacy. But um, if, if you have a state that continually or a state or a society that continues to ascribe certain types of group identity, you often find that that group identity becomes um, stronger than other alternative ways of looking at group identity. You see, you see a similar 
um, set, set, <coughs> you see a similar kind of chain in the way that, um, uh, you saw you see you saw a shift certainly between the you know seventies and eighties and then the nineties and early two thousands uh, in British Asian identity between um, a you know an ethnic Indi- Indian subcontinent or Asian self definition towards a much more um, religiously motivated division um, later on that was partly due to um, forces within some of those communities seeking to build up. A religiously based identity, but it was also due to uh, the society outside choosing to see them in that way as a primarily religiously, uh, particu- particularly um, Muslim Asians as a, a more of a religiously mo- uh, defined group. So you can get uh, it's not a question of legitimacy, but it's a question of you know are you actually um, creating a set of self fulfilling um, sets of identity by doing this. And are we, um, if we start talking about white identity, do we then end up, you know, creating a kind of um, society um, that seems white identity? Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, are, are, if, if we start talking about white identity, do we start end up creating a society that sees itself as having a white identity, whereas before they might say, well, you've got um, Italians and Germans and Scandinavians and Irish in America... Um, that are all separate for different reasons, and now suddenly you have a white, um, or not suddenly, but you have developed a white um, identity. And I think this is important as well when we start looking at definitions of racism, because it's it's very important clearly to identify what um, people are kind of thinking based on particular definitions. But the but our role in this is not neutral. We end up. Um, affecting the terms by which this debate happens, particularly those of us who have a platform and who write things and argue for things and take part in politics. We shape um, the world that um, we apparently just apparently just report, report on by our, by our discussions of it. And as we, as, we, as we shape these things, we um, can bring about quite significant changes in um, what people consider to be racist. So this isn't this isn't really an area where it's possible to have entirely neutral um, research. Although obviously that's what something someone like Eric tries to do, because once that research gets de- debated and comes out of the public domain, it becomes one of the concepts that we use to shape our discussion around this, and therefore shape um, how people's opinions evolve um, over the next over the next few years. So it's quite right in an academic setting to ask. Um, what definition of racism do people have? Um, the question in a more politically active or in, in the public sphere, if you like, is to say, what def- definition of racism is the right one? Why should we have that type of definition of racism? Um, which one should we prefer if there are different um, concerted, there are different concentrations of view over what racism means, and therefore which one should we Try, try and promote as part of our activity in the public sphere. Yeah, Eric, what do you think? Are you kind of, with your, with your research, do you think there is this risk that you actually create um, the category of, of a white identity that, that didn't necessarily exist? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much agree with what Garvin said at the end there about, um, you know, that, that, that is essentially we want to come up with, 
you know, it, it would be nice to have an agreed upon definition of racism. Um, in terms of the, in terms of creating identity, I'm much more skeptical in, in that I do think, of course, there are times when, you know, if you have, say, the one drop rule in the U.S. where they actually had a legal definition of who was and was not uh, a white American, then yes, that obviously will have force. But I, I'm much more skeptical of the claim that just because academics uh, talk about or, or pundits talk about a certain definition of, of, of a concept, that that's going to have a lot of teeth. So if you, for example, you know, you can talk about an Asian identity uh, existing, but, but if we really think about Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, I mean, how much common identity did they really have when we know that there's almost zero intermarriage between those two groups? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, even though these categories are being used in the census, for example, I'm, I'm much more skeptical that that shapes the consciousness of individuals in these groups. Whereas I, I'm much more of the view that it's developments uh, more on the ground level. So, for example, if you take white Americans, uh, it used to be the case that Protestants, Catholics, and Jews married within, each, uh, within their own religion. And then after the 1960s, this really broke down in a major way. And so you, you have very few white Americans that are only Italian or Irish. I mean, it's, it's ex extremely a small number. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why this white white American identity uh, emerges as a unitary group, whereas in the past, clearly, when Kennedy was elected, the fact he was Catholic was a big deal, and that's that reflected social reality. So I, I guess I'm more of the view that these there are going to be categories. There always, uh, and these are real identities that are meaningful to people, uh, and they're not necessarily the official ones. So I think Bangladeshi is a much more meaningful identity uh, to a lot of uh, Bangladeshi Britons, if you like, than, than Asian would be. Um, so I, I, and I do think, uh, you know, obviously the, the boundaries are, are fuzzy between these categories. So, you know, we know that Irish Catholics and Jews have, have become English in a way, even in the last 50 years in, in Britain, um, and, and that, that is a, that's a fuzzy boundary. So somebody like uh, Tommy Robinson, who's, who's got, got a Irish Catholic background is now the head of the English Defence League and no one bats an eyelash. So that there is obviously shifting. But I'm, le I'm more sceptical of the idea that that is somehow uh, created from above. Um, Gavin, I think you wanted to come in there? Yeah, um, I mean, I wonder, uh, it's not so much created from above as created from, you know, within and without. It's not that we pundits are going there imposing views, but we pundits and we in politics can choose, you know, who um, uh, who in communities has um, status and power and a megaphone. And this, this affects the, the way communities end up um, end up intermarrying, end up interacting, and end up developing their multiple identities because they have many more identities than just um, the eth ethnic ones. Um, a significant... Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason the separate, you know, uh, Bangladeshi and Pakistani identity, among all the other other reasons, not least to do with the rather fraught history between Bangladesh and Pakistan, is that there has been a. Um, they they live in different parts of the UK. They haven't had um, clear opportunities to mix in the same way. You have class identity on on top of that as people move out into. Um, new forms of employment and life, they end up developing a different set of social um, 
characteristics and patterns than they would have when they remain concentrated in the um, lifestyles of the original um, immigrant group. And people have um, numerous identities. Uh, they have professional identities, they have sporting allegiances, they have gender identities. All these things get um, added on to, to, su to someone. And if we just look at things in terms of a uh, one, or one or other classifi classification, we'll end up with a partial um, explanation of people's lives in the inner society. Yeah, absolutely agree with all of that. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was quite interesting what you said just there about uh, different sort of white groups uh, previously seeing themselves as different groups and then kind of um, identifying, I don't know if white identity is correct, maybe it's um, more correct to say American identity or, or, or British identity, but the point was, um, my point was that uh, going back to your discussion about wanting to maintain one's group share, that isn't there a risk if we sort of emphasize these different uh, racial or ethnic groups that actually what we could see happen, which what you, what you mentioned with previous groups who saw themselves as different, actually seeing themselves as one, actually that becomes more difficult when we emphasize these different groups? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. And, and a lot of, for example, Mark Lilla in the U.S. Has, has attacked sort of identity politics and identity liberalism. Um, and I think there's some some merit in that, that, you know, you want to get people to think about what they share in common and not what's different. But I also think that people do have, uh, you know, they, they have both an ethnic identity and a sort of national identity. Uh, I don't think one needs to kind of get rid of one in order to have the other. Uh, I think the issue with with the white identity is that it's just that in that case, uh, you know, that's something that's been seen as... Uh, something you don't really talk about or that is not quite legitimate. And I think, you know, one of the other, one of the backdrops to this, I think, is that in in sort of trying to sideline discussions of a, of a white group identity, uh, I think you can, some sometimes you can generate a lot of resentment, which I think is certainly in the case of the Trump vote, much, I think less so in the case of Europe and Brexit, but certainly in the survey work that I've, and, and some of the results I've seen in the U.S., I mean, this is absolutely the kind of number one driver of, of the Trump vote, or, or one of the major drivers of the Trump vote is this kind of resentment that other groups get an identity we don't, we're just, you know, we express it as racism. So I think that's where I kind of, and, and it ties into this definition of racism, if that definition is expanded for some groups but not for others, there's this perception of unfairness. So I think that's maybe where why one of the reasons I, I think that we do need to look at this definition of of racism and you know what is racism and what is groups asserting their interests you can see that on for example the affirmative action debate in the u.s where now that it's east asians that are that are kind of lobbying against affirmative action because it it it, it sort of impacts them negatively that's sort of seen as legitimate in a way that whites campaigning for that was not seen as legitimate so i think there is you know a perception i suppose of of differential treatment of groups which is tied to the definition of racism so this is where i i kind of think it would be better to operate with a consistent definition that applies to all groups mm. garon do you want to say uh, some final comments on that yeah i think i think what we're seeing here um i have two two points one one is a sort of class differential i think we're seeing significant um differences in um 
white ascription of identity, um, particularly based on social class and education level and what is a quite significant proxy for those two, urban or rural residents. Um, but a- apart from that, we're also, I think, seeing a situation where for a transformation for where for a long time we had, um, you know, the sort of the white majority identity was the default. It, um, and those people never had to articulate an identity, never had to sort of feel that that they um, had a particular way of, of existing because that was just what, the way the society ran. And we're entering into a phase where um, other forms of minority identity are getting big enough and um, strong enough to, to, cha- to challenge that. And so they're starting to explicitly call for a more multi-ethnic or multicultural identity. And the, the previously default population is working out um, what, you know, how it contributes to that new kind, kind of dialogue. And it's, it's coping with, at the same time, a whole set of social problems to do with deindustrialization, um, a loss of state, social status, particularly for um, men with intermediate and lower levels of education. And then, <clears throat> partly because of this, they, they, ex- they express their identity in ways that um, other, other people perceive, perceive as a threat. So all these things are creating an axis of social conflict where one didn't exist. Um, you know, maybe maybe 40 or 50 years ago. To find out more about the report by Professor Eric Kaufman and the critique by Dr. Gavin Walsh, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That was all for this episode. Thank you for listening.